0: This episode is brought to you in part by How to Tell the Truth, a hope filled book written by Preston Perry that gives practical and easy ways to share the truth of the gospel. Sharing your faith is not about winning arguments, it's about winning hearts. Find out How to Tell the Truth at your
1: favorite bookstore. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Yeah. Can I count it off? Yeah. One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square.
0: I'm in a ways, a this is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Weir and Justin Gibney. I'm Michael Weir. Justin, how are you doing this week? Hope you were able to catch some football over the weekend.
1: Man, did I? I really, uh, really enjoyed <laughs> that Houston uh, KC game. Uh, it is amazing how KC came back from 24 points down and ended up uh, almost blowing them right. out. So that was uh, that was exciting. It was incredible.
0: I couldn't uh, I was able to catch some of the game, but was also kind of running some errands and stuff and it was amazing you know every time you check in at the score you know you'd have to do a double take and be like you know what's going on here but i think kansas city especially you know i feel bad for lamar jackson and the problems he ran into you gotta think with uh with, with baltimore out of the way kansas city i think is not only favorites to to get the afc championship but i but i think they uh They might be the Super Bowl champions.
1: It's possible. I mean, if if they get into a shootout and you can't stop that, uh, you can't stop that offense, you're going to be in trouble. Now, I do. I must admit, I do have uh, a connection to the Titans. You know, I was in I I was in Nashville for seven years of my life. And so I like the Titans too. Henry's uh, a hard runner. And hopefully maybe they may be able to control the ball a little more against uh, KC. But we'll see either way. It's going to be an exciting game. And I'm excited for this next round
0: going to be great and it'll be it'll be fun to see uh uh you know it, it's good to see Rodgers be able to to get another go and see if you know he's he's kind of like the older the the elder left standing Brady's out Breeze is out so it's going to be fun to see if Rodgers can hold up against some of the some of the young guys That's right it, Justin uh, as per usual we have quite a bit to talk about this week want to thank folks for your response to last week's uh, episode that, which, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to, trying to provide some, some background and perspective on Iran. And we're going to start off this episode kind of continuing that situation with a bit of an update and really, you know, thinking about this in two parts. The first is, you know, what, precipitated a lot of this or what was a key sort of milestone on the march to where we are now was the Iran deal. Uh, And then, you know, the U.S.'s subsequent departure from the deal, pulling out of that deal, uh, which, you know, kind of started an escalation uh, between our countries. So we want to talk about that. And then, of course, we're going to discuss the uh, shooting down of the commercial airliner uh, and uh, the Ukrainian uh, airliner uh, and the fallout from that. But let's let's start with the Iran deal and just give a a bit of an overview for those who don't know the the 2015 Iran deal, uh, which is known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was a deal that involved uh the US China France Russia the UK uh and then obviously the deal was with with Iran and the the purpose of the deal was to impose restrictions on uh, Iran's development of a nuclear potential uh w- with the primary goal being to delay and create uh hurdles for Iran to be able to achieve a nuclear weapon. Uh, so there are there were numerous kinds of restrictions in the deal uh, and unprecedented sort of oversight that would be instituted by the UN. What Iran got out of the deal was uh, the elimination of a range of sanctions that some of which uh, had been in place for uh, decades um, that, that really hampered Iran's economy. Uh, and so in 2015, the deal was agreed uh, upon. There were some preliminary measures Iran had to take as a good faith sort of effort. The IAEA substantiated that, that Iran was, was moving forward with, with those in January 2016, and, and the deal went into effect. Now President Donald Trump uh during the campaign he ran against the Iran deal which of course was controversial uh when when the US agreed to to join the deal under President Obama and and Trump has always been skeptical of the deal and uh, after sort of warnings and a lot of sort of uh speculation that uh that we would withdraw from the deal uh President Trump actually, uh, took that step. And in uh, May of 2018, sort of officially the U S withdrew, uh, the allies, the remaining partners in the deal, particularly the European, uh, nations, France, Germany, UK, uh, tried to find a way to hold it together. They created, uh, they created, uh, Uh, sort of way for transactions to be made for trade to happen between their countries in Iran that didn't use the U.S. banking system, Uh, but it didn't really hold up. Uh, And then the U.S. continued to put the clamps down, even restricting Iran's ability um, to export uh, oil to those countries. Uh, And so Iran was in the place of... uh, having these agreements having being a part of an agreement that uh that limited their ability to uh, develop uh nuclear weapons uh, limited their ability to stockpile uranium etc uh and sanctions were <laughs> being put back in place their economy was not able to grow in the way that they have uh in the way that the the the, the deal sort of set uh, their economy uh, up to grow and to take advantage of markets that had previously not been available, uh, and this led to a series of of escalations, some of which we uh, talked about uh, talked about uh, last week, and uh, you know it's part of a timeline that uh, that brings us to a U.S. drone strike uh, killing Soleimani. Uh, so that that's an overview of the of of the Iran deal. Now I should say, critics of the Iran deal say that you know there are a number of critiques. One is that it, it it's the Iran deal is about Iran's nuclear uh, nuclear program. It's not about other weaponry they may have, including ballistic missiles. Uh, it does not limit how they try to use their influence in the region, including the. Uh, the networks that General Soleimani was responsible for uh, for supporting and in some cases starting up. And so critics of the Iran deal would say we're allowing for Iran's economy to flourish because they're making agreements around nuclear weapons that, again, critics of the Iran deal would say we'll never be able to verify that Iran's not not doing this. We don't have uh, – th- there's – there's not enough access that you could have to be able to verify that there's not some way Iran is developing um, and, and moving forward, anyways. Uh, and now they have a growing economy that's supporting their their endeavors around uh, uh, in, in the region, including uh, contributing to, uh, to to groups that have that have harmed our troops in Iraq. Um, and so that's that's the sort of criticism. I think the, the defense of the Iran agreement is that one deal can't cover everything, and limiting Iran from becoming a nuclear player, uh, a global nuclear player, is a is a pretty pretty important goal for American foreign policy, for the safety of our allies in the region, including uh, Israel. Uh, and so the Iran deal has, continues to be a tense point of disagreement. Uh, most of the Democratic candidates running, if not all of them, uh, say that if they were elected, they would uh, re enter the U.S. Uh, into the uh, Iran deal. Uh, obviously, Donald Trump is going to uh, uh, claim that uh, recent events uh, show that he was right to pull out of Iran. Uh, pull out of the deal that Iran is sort of by nature, a, um, an anti-American, uh, actor that we should not be allowing to, uh, gain, uh, economic, uh, growth and increase its influence in the region. So, so that's, that, that's sort of the, at least that's my overview of the Iran deal. Justin, uh, what did I miss and, and, and what do you think, uh, It was the value of the Iran deal. Do you think that the U.S. should get back into it or um, uh, especially after the events of the last couple of months? And what do you think it says about uh, sort of American foreign policy and, and, uh, and how we think about the region?
1: Yeah, good question. I thought that was an excellent overview, so I don't have a whole lot to add to that. I thought I thought you covered it very well. You know, for me, the, the two choices seemed to be at the time of of, you know, uh, well, if you look at the two sides of this conversation, or this argument, one side is we're arguing whether we should crush Iran, Ar- Ar- Iran, or whether they were should be allowed some breathing room and then kind of given of uh, the the ability on their own to stop any further kind of um, development of those weapons that that seemed to kind of be the two options right do we just crush them continue to crush them and uh kind of hope that they don't have the ability to continue to to develop this stuff or do we give them some breathing room and let them kind of do that not completely voluntarily but there wasn't a whole lot of teeth to that to that agreement my bigger issue is that when we go into that type of negotiation as a country with the leaders of the country at that time and we get into an agreement like that to have hazardly throw it out is problematic to me. Right. That That's kind of one of the major issues I had, not that it was perfect, not that I don't think that maybe we could have gotten more, but when you have several nations going into this conversation and, and coming to an agreement that, you know, they thought was sound at the time, I do think we should be slow to back out of those things because of every country, every time they change leadership, crumbled up all the agreements that they had before, we would be in a, a very unstable situation. Uh, and so that that's my thought on it. I, I think if a lot of the other powers are saying that, you know, they want they thought it was effective and they they want uh, Iran to, to uh, hold to it, then we should give very uh, serious consideration to entering back into that. Um, and, and so that's really just where I stand on it. And the bigger picture for me is this. I I think it's just shameful how the president has handled the issue in general with when it comes to Iran. Iran. Uh, He's taken a matter of war. He's taken a matter of kind of life and death with this whole situation just in general. And he plays around with it like it's some family game of, of battleship or Uh, Even like a reality show. I mean, our our politics to some extent look like a reality show uh, coming from both sides. He doesn't seem and I've said this over and over. I feel like a broken record, but he does not seem to acknowledge the gravity of the situation or the responsibility that comes with his office. And and, and I say this by looking at his tweets, by looking just at his communication in general Um, and. One of my greatest fears and we're kind of entering into the the other part of this conversation, which, you know, I'll, I'll let you get into the details of it as well, which is the shooting down of, of, of this uh, this plane and kind of the responses that came from this plane being shot down. Um, one of my greatest fears about the left's response to Trump from the beginning, and I've said it on the show, was that they would respond in kind, uh, that they would allow Trump to reset the standards of discourse. And to a certain extent, I think that's exactly what's happened. Uh, Now, Trump is president, and he deserves you know the overwhelming majority of the criticism for the current discourse because he's the one that reset the standard, and he you know he's the leader uh, of the free world. Um, But the response, but but at the same time, I don't think that frees the left uh, from the responsibility to act maturely and judiciously. I understand the temptation. To react in kind. I, I really do. I don't think it, I don't think it's a justification to act in kind. And I don't know if you read it or not, Michael, but David Brooks had a really great article that touched on this subject that was co- that, that was called Trump has made us all stupid. Uh, the, the decline in discourse in the anti yeah. uh, Trump yeah, yeah, yeah. echo chamber. And he starts he starts by saying this. He says, look, Donald Trump is impulse driven, ignorant, narcissistic and intellectually dishonest. Um, and he says, in turn, the response to him should be judicious, informed, mature and reasonable. Right. It should be the opposite response. Uh, but unfortunately, the communication coming from the left, especially on some of these uh, Iran issues, demonstrates that the left has become what he says, a mirror of Trump himself, overwrought, uh, uncalibrated and incapable of having an intelligent conversation about any complex policy problem. Um, and I think the uh, Iran situation is just that. I mean, whether we're talking about the agreement where we're talking about this, this plane getting shot down, you saw people on the left treating Iran like it was just this beautiful, benevolent country that Trump had made, you know, had forced to do all these terrible things. Trump somehow forced them to shoot this plane down. Trump somehow forced them or America somehow forced them to lie about it. Right. Um and and so over and over, we just saw this narrative that was being put out there that was just ridiculous. I mean, when the when the rallies were against what Trump had done, yeah. we talk no, about right. the rallies, but we underreport the rallies yeah. that yeah. happened after that, that yeah. were back against the government. And why didn't why did we underreport that? We underreported it because it hurts our narrative yeah. uh, against Trump. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's that that's simply what it is. And so that communication has been to me. Uh, just really, yeah. really disappointing. Um, yeah, I, Go ahead.
0: I, I kind of want to make a, a, a so I, I agree. I agree with you. I want to make a similar point. So I think elected officials are doing that. Uh, I'll say another thing I noticed and I, I wasn't sure I was going to talk about this, uh, on, on the podcast, but, but since you, you raised your excellent point, I, I have to say, Justin, I was, um, uh, i was really troubled uh to see on social media the responses of some including many christians um uh, when it was reported that iran had stro- uh had launched an attack on military uh in- installations and bases in iraq uh and this was this was before we knew what that that there were no American casualties. It was before we knew exactly what was going on. It was before we knew what the extent of the attack would be. I, I saw people responding uh well the the basic tone of some responses. And I'm not talking about everything. I'm talking about a certain strain of responses was this is a validation. So kind of two things. One, this is a validation of what I thought would happen as a response of Trump's, uh, foreign policy. So there were, there were people doing victory laps, uh, uh, that, that they were sort of personally sort of vindicated. Uh, and then I, I saw number two folks going directly to sort of the electoral implications of, of it, uh, you know, no way Trump's going to win reelection now, uh, that, that, uh, that, that this has happened. This is spinning wildly out of control. I I would just say uh, th- like this, this isn't a game uh, that there were, th- there was a period and I, I retweeted someone who said, uh, y- you know, uh, and I saw this tweet in the midst of all the tweets about sort of the political prognostications and all this uh, someone tweeted, you know, I, I have a, I have a family member who's at the base that, that, that the Iranian, the Iranians are attacking right now, please pray for them. And it was just a really sobering reminder. This isn't, this isn't a game. And particularly for those who, who don't, who don't do politics for a living. Uh, I, I just, I, I worry, Justin, about what, uh, Sort of political media is doing to folks when we respond to an attack on an American base with political prognostications and sort of victory laps about how great our our political sensibilities were. That oh uh, you know Trump's such an idiot. He should have seen this coming. Why you know uh, of course this is what the Iranians are going to do. Like. Like how about we wait and find out if if anyone's been been murdered yet? Like how, how about we wait and find out if, if 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 our our troops are okay before figuring out what the electoral consequences are. Now there are there are people who you know there are people who write on the election and it's their job to do that. I would just like to remind uh, folks who that's not their job. That it's not your job. Like you don't have to. You don't have to think about things that way. And there's something that's deeply unhealthy when you have a society of electoral pundits and folks who, when they hear America has been attacked, that that's their line of thinking. Uh, and so that's related to to, to what you're talking how, yeah, about.
1: I think that's exactly right, Michael. And listen to how we actually address it. We address it with snark. We address it with clapback. And it really seems like this is we address it in a way that you would see on a reality show. And I'm talking about pundits and all these folks who are very intelligent and all this stuff. They really address things like you would see people going back and forth on a reality show. it's, It's crazy to me. And to get back to what David Brooks was saying, I think he hits it on the head. He says, you know, on the left, hating Trump. Uh, together has become the ultimate bonding attention grabbing and profit mechanism for those of us in the anti-trump world he goes on to say and i think this is very important he says most of this week's argument about the middle east wasn't really about the middle east it was all narcissistic narcissistically about ourselves democrats defend terrorists that's what the republicans were saying republicans are warmongers that's what the democrats are saying actual iranians are just uh, are just bit players in our imperialistic soap opera, the passive reci- uh, recipients of our greatness. Uh, and it's and then he goes on one, one last part of this. He says the world is more complicated than this cartoon. Love him or hate him. Trump has used military force less than any other president since Jimmy Carter. When it comes to foreign policy, he is not like recent Republicans. Right. And so you have to deal with it. We can say right. that he he made the wrong move here. But to say that he's always and that he escalated things that he when he didn't have to. But for Democrats to say that he's the biggest warmonger and all that, it's just not true. Let's deal with the facts, because when you don't deal with the facts, you lose credibility. And we're dealing in this cartoon, this uh, TV reality show kind of back and forth. And all it does is weak is is make the discourse more and more toxic and some of the people who i see who should know better who have been a part of government at high levels who have been in administrations and had serious jobs to talk about politics and international strife in the way that they do for their own purposes is really really sad
0: yeah i i agree you, you know i Two people who stuck out, and certainly there were others, but two people who stuck out to me who who made positive contributions uh, would be David French at, the, what is it, the Dispatch? Um, yep, that's and, it. And then Yasher Ali, uh, who tweeted out an incredible thread over the weekend about his conversations with uh, Iranians of, about what was what was happening in, in his family background and what he saw as someone who's a part of generally progressive kind of conversations. And he, he called out some of exactly what, what you were just talking about, sort of uh, the, the, the fact that so much of the conversation wasn't about the, the welfare of the Iranian people. Uh, he, he pointed out the fact that when, when the Iranians were protesting in a way that might benefit sort of, uh, or support narratives the left liked about Trump, then, you know, it was all over and people were lifting it up. And well, when the Iranians were protesting about something else, uh, it, it, it was, uh, uh, people were people were more quiet and, and, and he pointed that out. So, you, you know, I, I wanna make sure we're not, I wanna make sure since I said negative things about some of what I was seeing on social media, I, I was also heartened to see folks like David French Yashar ali and, and and several others who I think you know made made positive positive contributions
1: yeah there there were definitely some sober voices, and you're just thankful for those so, sober voices, and just kind of wanted to go to some of those other folks and say, "Hey, man, people are listening to you' yeah, right? you're, you're you're framing the way that people see these issues, and there's plenty of stuff to attack Trump on, especially in this situation." But when you attack stuff and and you take it to a place where it's not necessarily credible, it's more creative than credible, as we used to say, then you're actually hurting the conversation. And for some reason, people don't get that. But speaking of credibility, I don't know if you saw this or not, Michael, but there was a recent uh, Pew Research poll that I think came out uh, this weekend where people from different countries were asked how much they trusted different world leaders when it comes to international affairs, hmm. now probably this probably won't surprise anyone, but only about twenty nine percent of the people that were asked the question trusted Trump when it came to international affairs. Goodness. The person that came out on top is somebody that I talk about uh, quite a bit is Germany's uh, Angela Merkel.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, she came out with almost fifty percent of the people saying that they trusted her when it came to her decisions. Nobody really got much over. I don't think anyone got over fifty percent, but she came out. Uh, even she came out the highest out of all the the, the names that were a part of it. Um, and I don't think this means that people agree with every decision she makes. But what I think this says about Merkel and the things that I really admire about Merkel is that she conducts herself in a mature and judicious manner. Right. Yeah. And you can see that. Even if you don't speak the same language as her. Right. Right. You can just see it in how she conducts herself, how she responds to Trump, how she responds to things like this. uh, What's going on in in Iran. She's a different kind of leader. And I think the people were right to choose her as the person that most stood out on this. And it would help our uh, our president, number one, but it would also help the candidates that are running to be the president to look at her as a model of how they should go back and forth because they do. And we talked about this last week. They feel like they have to respond to everything quickly and they have to have this clap back that shows that they're the ones that are, that can really try to hurt Trump. Uh, and, and it's unfortunate. I think our elected officials and our candidates need to follow what I'll call the uh, Merkel standard of professionalism uh, before you tweet or post anything. You should ask yourself, is this something that uh, Merkel would say? Uh, if not, <laughs> then keep it to yourself really because some of these folks if if they would talk like they're talking now 15 years ago people would look at them like it was they were completely unprecedented right like pe- people would be like what do you why would you even speak like that yeah. but now it's okay because again we have allowed Trump to lower uh to lower that discourse
0: yeah yeah that's good uh, j- just a, a couple other items I don't, I don't know if we need to if there's much to go into here since we kind of touched on them a bit. But uh, to your last point, you know, over the weekend, there was a bit of back and forth that Trump uh, told, uh, suggested that uh, he said that I I believe, and it's interesting, as uh, Steve Inskeep of, of NPR pointed out, it's interesting that he used this language of believe. He said, I believe that Iran was planning to attack uh, for u.s embassies uh trump's own defense secretary was asked about this uh and he uh, well he was careful to say that he has no reason to doubt that the president is right about that he saw it, he was never shown and this is the defense secretary that he never saw any evidence suggesting uh, of of direct plots uh uh being imminent or or being being planned uh, and so you know i i thought that was important to state on the show especially after your point about like look there there may come a time when there's a there's a, a serious threat that uh the US needs to uh rally the world uh and our allies to respond to and you better you better make sure that your word is taken seriously and that your your word is not something you use um just to get your your way however you need to in the short term even if you're uh even if you're you're playing a little loose with with the facts because when the big moment comes uh, you you might find that your word doesn't carry as much weight as you would like it to uh, so I thought that was interesting and then justin before I toss it back to you just the the the, the, the last sort of interesting uh, well uh, the, the the last substantive news update uh, uh, since the since our last episode was uh, Iran just so folks have the news or Iran uh, a Ukrainian passenger jet was, was shot down. Iran admitted that it was that, that they did in fact shoot it down. They blamed human error and of course blamed, uh, uh, America for, uh, for, I, I, I don't know, uh, the, quote us adventurism. I, I don't understand, uh, like you you ought to be able to like is he saying that the u s made us nervous and so are, and so we accidentally shot down this this jet that's not acceptable um the Iranian officials expressed uh significant contrition. The commander of the i r g c uh said that in in all my lifetime, I haven't been as sorry as much as now, never I wish I had been on board and burned with them. May God forgive us. And then after uh, the Iranian people and the family of the victims forgive us and we, for this incident, we were determined all the more uh, to to make it up. And so uh, 176 people died, uh, uh, including 82 Iranians, 57 Canadians, uh, 11 Ukrainians, 10 Swedes, 4 Afghans, 3 Germans, and 3 British nationals. Uh, So a, a very... A very sad event i mean i i i was i was being a little i i think iran has to take responsibility for its misuse of its of its weapons and they're often sort of uh bloviating about how sophisticated their weaponry are uh, uh, their their sort of defense capabilities uh, are so this is uh, like you have to take responsibility for the mistake you can't blame uh, uh america but but this clearly comes out of an environment in which tensions are high and when tensions are high a, a lot of a lot of mistakes that can be made which isn't to sort of I'm not trying to shift blame but it's just it's just the 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 fact that when when you uh when you have ex, uh, uh, an acceleration of uh of conflict uh bad bad things happen uh, you you can't always control uh, all of the consequences of, of of what happens and and that's uh, that's important to keep in mind uh, I, I'm not sure what the what the fallout from this is going to be other than the fact that you know I, I do think perhaps it adds a bit of caution to any further military response to uh, to the assassination of Soleimani uh, on Iran's behalf I, I think they, they they feel like they now have to sit back and, 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 and cool it at least militarily uh, uh, for a while when it comes to retribution. Uh, But, but I, I could be wrong there. Uh, J- Justin, before we move to the next segment, just with, with those two news updates or anything else regarding this situation, anything uh, else you want? Yeah, to-
1: just, just to close it out. I mean, you mentioned a few people that did a, a good job and while a lot of the presidential candidates along with the president, I was kind of disappointed in how they handled it. I think Biden, Joe Biden, stuck out a little bit because yeah. I did. I think he seemed like the adult in the room. He didn't. In fact, he said, "I'm going to reserve judgment a couple of times and let let's see what what's actually going on. That's I want to know what's actually going idea. on before I just comment." Yeah, yeah. who who yeah. thought of that? A, a president, a presidential candidate, uh, trying to be judgment. judicious yeah. and actually, actually know yeah. they they actually know the facts before they make a comment. And yeah. so I, I I do want to point that out. I thought Biden was very adult within this conversation. He had critiques of Trump but he didn't jump into some of the craziness that I saw. I mean, Warren, Buttigieg and a couple other folks, it was like, come on guys. Yeah. Um. I would also, but I also say this, the, the lesson that I think comes from this is what we saw was that a lot of partisans on both sides were trying to use the Iran situation to further their narrative. Yeah. Right. And, and Michael hit on this a little bit. This proves me right because, and yeah. when you're doing that, You're not thinking about the people that are affected by it. So I think the lesson that we can all draw from this is when serious situations are going on, it is not about your narrative. Put your narrative aside. Look to the facts. Look to your compassion, because I'll tell you, trying to maintain your narrative, whether it's a progressive or a conservative narrative, can really compromise your compassion. Because you're trying to make sure that you show why you're right, why your camp is is. Uh, totally right and the other camp is totally wrong and you miss the people right you got to put skin on some of these issues and you 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 fail to put skin on some of these issues when it's all about furthering your narrative you will block out the things that go against your narrative and you will sometimes overemphasize the things that go with your narrative and hopefully we can come out of this conversation or this issue uh and kind of correct that from here on out
0: yeah I think that's good. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to discuss uh, Speaker Pelosi moving forward, uh, sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate and, and how that might play out. And we'll also talk about uh, Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott's decision not to accept new refugees in Texas. This is the Church Politics Podcast. we're back. This is the church politics podcast. Uh, just in this week could be a a, a big week uh, with the impeachment process uh, Speaker Pelosi is suggesting that she will send over the articles to the Senate for for folks who sort of don 't know and it is confusing and it doesn 't happen that often so it's not exactly like a a process of government that we have a lot of experience and sort of uh, uh a lot of occasion to sort of revisit uh but uh, the impeachment is basically a two step process uh, in the house uh voting on the articles is sort of the first step but then the house appoints uh managers to basically act as really the 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 lawyers the prosecutors uh, for the case uh, in the Senate. Uh, 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 again, you know, what What typically would happen is, you know, the American people would see a, a kind of trial, a presentation of the case from the House for the Senate to, to vote on. That vote hasn't taken place yet. That's what's supposed to happen uh, this week. Speaker Pelosi has thus far refrained from taking that vote in order to, as, as she's been quite explicit about, which is you know, interesting, uh, you know, to maintain maximum leverage on McConnell uh, so that uh, McConnell will set up the trial in a way that Democrats deem to be sort of the most, uh, you know, fair. Uh, Not only does that not seem to be working, not only, Justin, does, is this not uh, something that was unforeseen. I mean, the whole time the debate about moving forward with impeachment has been the fact that it seems a fait accompli that, uh, well, I guess the opposite of it. <laughs> it, it, it seems right. it, seems the, it seems determined. It seems obvious that it's not going anywhere in the Senate regardless, even if there was a trial, the fact that you were going to get enough Republicans to support it. Uh, and so part of the big debate this whole time was, you know, does this end up in a place where the American people feel like all of this attention and all of this energy was being sucked up in something that Democrats in the house knew wasn't going to have uh, the the ultimate effect that an impeachment process is supposed to have, which is the removal of, of, of a president. Um, and that's sort of where the expectation is. Uh, and so, 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 that's where we are. What's interesting is not only, you know, the debate over the last several weeks has been McConnell talking about whether there will be witnesses at the, at the, uh, for the Senate trial, this, and that's sort of been the parameter. Of course, Donald Trump, as usual, moves the Overton, uh, the Overton window. And he just suggests that the Senate shouldn't even hold a trial. So just ignore, well, basically, you, you know, ignore the process that would typically be established by a historic vote like we saw in the house to, uh, to, to impeach the president. And instead of holding a tribunal, uh, it just dismissed the charges outright. Uh, and Trump says that this, this will, uh, that this will send the message that the partisan vote in the house, uh, doesn't even sort of earn the respect of the Senate and doesn't Sort of deserve the respect and recognition of the American public. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think we're going to have like a week of, you know, not the most heartening kind of <laughs> kind of political exchange. You know, focused on you know what's what's good and true, <laughs> Justin. Uh, but how, how do you mm-hmm. how do you see how do you see some of this uh, how do you see some of this playing out? Do you think that McConnell will feel? i mean right so so there, there's a chance that you know uh set, trump calling for an outright uh you know rejection of uh the the house articles without a tribunal that that it sets up a new expectation or a new sort of uh idea that moderate Republicans can be like, at least we we held a tribunal and may not have had everything Democrats wanted, but, you know, we stood up to Donald Trump and we were, you know, we were at least gonna, you know, make sure that there was a tribunal. The American people got to hear, you know, the the House appointed managers make their best case and we voted and Uh, the Senate's vote was clear, like that's a potential outcome? Or do you think that McConnell is 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 gonna is gonna go with Trump on this and just just say, you know what, the president's right. This was a partisan vote. They don't have a case. They've been playing politics with sending the articles over. uh, Instead of having a tribunal, let's just let's just hold a vote uh, now since we got to see what happened uh, over in the House.
1: I think he I'm not exactly sure, but I think he'll go through more of the process. Um, and, and one of the things that we missed from the last conversation about uh, Iran uh, that kind of fits into this is some people from the president's own party were saying that he needs to get to take a course in the separation of powers. Right. right. Yeah, uh, that right. He doesn't quite, quite understand what the role of each uh, side is to do. And he kind of needs to step back and let uh, the different uh, parts of the government uh, serve their function. Uh, and he doesn't always want to do that or, or participate in that so that's probably what's behind his comment uh but i, I expect that uh it, this uh trial uh this back and forth is not going to be what the democrats want it to be uh uh but i do expect uh, mcconnell to he like he said before he's going to follow the the precedent that that came with the uh clinton impeachment after the clinton impeachment and yeah. that trial let me talk a little bit about what's in the articles of impeachment all right. Just so everybody knows. And, and when you hear this, you have a little bit of background on what they're talking about. You know that the and campaign wants to raise civic literacy. So we like you to, to have this uh, to have some of this background. So we know that Trump was impeached, which means that the House voted to impeach him. And he was impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors by the House of Representatives on behalf of the American people. Right. So all of this is done on behalf of the American people By your representatives, okay. Uh, Specifically, he was impeached, and these high crimes and misdemeanors involve uh, an abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. Okay, so first, when we're talking about this abuse of power, they are saying that he betrayed the trust of the American people by soliciting the interference of a of a foreign government, which would be Ukraine, in the twenty twenty presidential election. right. So he solicited them to solicited them to interfere with the election. Um, Ukraine. uh, Basically, he wanted Ukraine to make an announcement that there would be an investigation of Biden and that would have helped his election prospects. Right. So he's he's uh, using a a foreign government to help his election uh, prospects. And when he's doing this, he use he uses taxpayer funds to entice them to do his bidding. Right now, those are the allegations. I guess you could say they're more of more than allegations, at least on the House side, because the House voted to impeach him for those reasons. After, uh, I think, a a two month long or something like that uh, investigation. Um, Now, number two is the obstruction of justice. Um, They're saying with this charge or with, you know, with, with, with this finding, they're saying that he defied subpoenas for documents and testimony. Right. So when basically the House was like, hey, we need these documents from you. Trump said no. Uh, when they said, hey, we need Bolton to testify and this person to testify and that person to testify. Uh, Trump said no. Right. So that's obstructing. And what's obstruction is, is it's keeping the other side from finding the facts. Right. Anytime that there's a trial, trial should always be based on facts. And there's a fact finding, period. If one side or the other prevents the other side from getting all the facts then they have obstructive obstructed justice is what we usually call it. In this case, it's obstructing Congress, uh, stopping Congress from doing their job because you're not providing them with all the facts. You're keeping them away from the facts. Uh, And so that's that's when you hear about these articles of impeachment. That's what's what it's about Uh, when he's impeached in the House. I hope everybody's figured it out by now. He is not out of office. You have to go to trial in the Senate and they would have to convict in order for him to be removed from office. Again, you know, as Twitter is, we saw a lot of folks talking about it as if he was gone after the vote in the house. And that just wasn't right. But I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that everybody has figured that out by now. Uh, the next question and Michael talked about it a little bit is will the Senate allow witnesses, right? Are there going to be witnesses that come in uh, to testify in, uh, during this trial or not? Uh, my understanding is that, uh, they were going to likely need four Republicans to vote with the Democrat, Democrats to make this happen, to to get some of the witnesses in. So the Democrats want wit- witnesses to testify. Uh, the Republicans or at least McConnell. I don't know that he speaks for everybody, but McConnell is, is saying that there's probably no need for um, for those witnesses. Um and here's here's basically the argument that he that he's making. I think there should be witnesses. But McConnell is saying that he's going to follow the precedent that was set during the Clinton trial. So the Clinton since uh, the Clinton trial followed a certain precedent. And under this precedent, after the opening arguments and the questions from the senators uh, to uh, what we would call the attorneys or whatever, the senators would then vote on a resolution to allow witnesses or not. Right. So it wouldn't be automatic. So what they're going to do is they're going to first have a resolution to set the rules. What are the rules of this trial? They would. He's saying that based on the president from Clinton, from what happened with Clinton, they would then after the opening remarks and after they, they gave questioning, then the Senate would vote to see whether they wanted to have witnesses or not. That vote probably will not go the Democrats way unless they can get four Republicans to agree with them. And that's kind of where it stands. I wouldn't bet on the fact that there's going to be witnesses if that's uh, what ends up happening Uh, at the end of the day. Whether or not Trump stays in office, to me, is going to be decided in 2020. Uh, so don't I wouldn't get my hopes up that he's right. going to get removed or that he you know that any decision either way is going to change what he's doing right now. You're going to have to go vote in 2020, and that's where that's going to be the uh, the last say.
0: Yeah, that that that's a great great overview. You know, I, I do think one interesting factor is you know there's been conversation about you know so Pelosi is going to have this opportunity to appoint managers. There's been this conversation about you know whether it would be a good idea to appoint Justin Amash, who uh, is the now independent but former Republican staunch libertarian, but also, you know, has serious problems with Trump, uh, whether uh, he will be one of the managers. Uh, You know, if she goes in that direction, you wonder if Amash making a public case about why he thinks witnesses would be Helpful is something that could pick off for Republicans you know to vote to to allow witnesses uh and so you know that that's one interesting curveball that could be thrown into this obviously the because Justin Mosh left the Republican party, the vote uh in the house was uh was uh, only Democrats voted for the articles uh but if you have an independent former republican who you're lifting up as one of the managers, obviously there are some, you know, partisan folks who, who don't want to, who have concerns about lifting up a a libertarian to this kind of uh, platform. I actually think would be a great idea. I think would, you know, it would uh, affirm the message that this is about more than partisan politics, which I think, uh, (laughs) which I think, uh speaker pelosi has done a pretty good job of asserting i think some of the others in the caucus have <laughs> could, could, uh could use some work <laughs> on on that uh and, and and then it could put you know interesting pressure on uh on republicans for a vote like this and maybe even uh when uh when it comes to voting on on the articles uh but it, it's going to be uh interesting to see how this plays out another interesting sort of Wrench in this whole thing is, uh, you know, this. If there is a tribunal, it, it could take place over the most critical weeks of the Democratic primary process in a in a primary where we still have multiple United States senators running, uh, including uh, Bernie Sanders, who what who some would consider to be uh, the front runner in the race right now, uh, who might not who might. You know, be have to leave the the campaign trail uh, to 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 fulfill their duties in the Senate. Obviously, that's not you know that they have to they have to do their uh, their duty. It, it, I'm not uh, I'm not suggesting that they should do otherwise, but it is going to be an interesting factor in how in how the presidential race uh, unfolds over the next uh, month or two. All right. Well, we're gonna uh, take one more quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the recent decision in Texas. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. Justin, on Friday, Governor uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced that his state will not accept new refugees in 2020. Uh, this is uh, Governor Abbott is the first governor to ba- basically take up the opportunity that President Trump offered when he signed an executive order uh, in September that allowed for uh, states and municipalities to ba- to basically have to opt in uh, to. Uh, resettling refugees, uh, which puts a uh, political burden that was not previous there on, uh, on elected officials to affirmatively say that they're going to accept refugees like it's a like it's an open question. Governor Abbott again is the first to take up uh, President Trump on, on this offer, the first state to uh, categorically reject refugee resettlement. Now, Governor Abbott says. Uh, that this is because uh, Texas has taken on undue sort of uh, responsibility when it comes to refugee resettlement. Uh, Since uh, fiscal year 2010, more refugees have been received in Texas than in any other state, Governor Abbott said. And in fact, over that decade, roughly 10% of all refugees resettled in the U.S. have been placed in Texas. Uh, He then went on to uh, blame Congress for its failure to pass immigration reform and protect the border for, uh, his, his, uh, his decisions, uh, to, to, uh, to reject refugees. Now, an array of faith-based, uh, groups like World Relief, like Lutheran, uh, services, uh, Church World Service, uh, have obviously come out and, uh, criticized governor abbott democrats have been very vocal the, the basic argument uh being that you know these are refugees who by definition are seeking refuge and it's uh it, it goes against uh you know quote unquote our values to uh to to reject uh reject these refugees uh just an, You know, what what do you think of this decision? Do you think Governor Abbott uh, has a point or uh, or or do you think he's made the wrong decision here?
1: Yeah, I I think he's made the wrong decision uh, and I think he has a point. Right. Uh, My default position here is to accept refugees, if at all possible, because, as you said, by definition, Right. They are seeking refuge. Uh, and if we can accommodate that in any way, I think we should we should do our best to to do that. Uh, I, I haven't heard that Texas is just not able to do that. Um, you know, that's just where I am. Um, but as always on the church, Pod- church politics podcast and with the and campaign, we still always want to try to look closer at the issue uh, to see if it's more complicated than it initially appears. And so when I say that uh, Governor Abbott has a point, I'm not going to dismiss the fact that 10 percent of all refugees settled in the U.S. are settled in Texas. That's a lot. I mean, it, it really is. I'm also not going to ignore the fact that Congress hasn't done what they're supposed to do. Um, they just, it, that's just a fact. They haven't done what they're supposed to do. We don't have comprehensive immigration reform, and that's part of the problem. Um, this is a, you know, Texas is a border state. And so the border border states have to deal with the reality of immigration, all this stuff, a lot more than we do. Some of us are dealing with it more in theory and and it sounds good, but it can be quite a burden on some of these states. So I don't want to dismiss that. I think, I think that'd be a mistake to just say that's really not a big deal. But what I do want to do is I want to spread out the blame a little bit, uh, because again, our federal law, when it comes to immigration is trash, it's just inadequate, um, uh, because DC can't get it together. So the burden is unfairly on border States. And so he dug in, right. I'm going to say that right. he does have a point. It is an unfair burden on them because the federal government hasn't done what they're supposed to do, what they're elected to do in that regard. So I give him that. I think that is a good point. Uh, at the same time, I don't necessarily excuse, excuse Texas. Uh, but if you're mad at Abbott, then you should be mad as well at, at your federal politicians, who haven't gotten comprehensive immigration reform done right because republicans want to use it to rile up their base it's still i mean it still just confuses me that that's the 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 the, the republican base that is their number one issue that's the number one issue out of all the stuff that's going on the number one issue that gets them mad is that immigrants are coming into this country and how they're coming into this country the number one issue Right. And so that's used by Republicans to rile up their base because they know that. And then on the other side, you have Democrats who talk about the issue foolishly uh, and they talk about it in what amounts to open borders. None of neither of these positions helps us get to a reasonable conclusion. Right. And, and so I think you can place some of the blame on the people in D.C. And that's a point that he that I think he makes fairly well. Um We've got to take responsibility for that. You know, if there's folks that have been in office a long time who would rather rile up their base or make sure, you know, the far left or the far right thinks they're 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 cool and they're saying the right things, than to actually get something done. And this is where governing is important. And this is why you can't govern while trying to please everybody on the furthest side of, of your side of the aisle. You can't govern like that. Sometimes you have to get things done or you end up in situations like this. So Texas should do the right thing. I think it sends the wrong message. I think it's unfortunate because people could really suffer because of the decision they're making. But DC and our federal elected officials, um, their, their hands are not clean on, on this one either.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, uh, so I I think that's all. uh, The only thing I have to add is, you know, if if Abbott's problem is Texas is disproportionately taking on, I mean one way he could have made this point differently is to, you know, say that we're. I mean, he zeroed it out. <laughs> I mean, he did say we're we're only going to accept, you know, a, a number of refugees commensurate with our population or anything like that. So I, I think that there were, uh, you know, a, a range of of options he could have taken. Uh, but but yeah. Uh, Justin, as you so uh, as you so well uh, p- pointed out, immigration policy has been one area in which the dysfunction of our government is is most clear, and and border states like Texas do suffer because uh, because immigra- you know they carry the brunt, and you know uh, politicians uh, that aren't on the border that don't have uh, as much direct sort of interaction don't don't have as much to uh as much on the line get to demagogue around the issue and know that their state isn't going to have to deal with it directly uh but it makes for good politics and so I, i don't see i've been waiting for you know the fever to break on this you know now it's been Almost two decades, Justin, and I, I just don't see, you know, don't see a, a, a path forward. I, I don't see. Um, it's hard to imagine an outcome in this election that uh, that that leads Republicans to feel like they don't have to uh, continue to take on the posture that 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 they've taken up to this point, but we'll, uh, we'll just have to see. I, I do think it, I will say I'm grateful for the faith-based organizations that have spoken out uh, on this and hopefully uh, negotiations will be able to take place uh, so that, I mean, obviously Texas is just, you know, an important state uh, uh, for, for this issue. And so hopefully uh, negotiations will be able to take place and and uh, and Governor Abbott might be able to uh, t- to change his mind on this one to some extent.
1: Yeah, I would hope so. Uh, and, and just for a resource for people on this particular issue, uh, I have a I have a friend who who's actually, you know, teamed up with the IN campaign on some things mm-hmm. named Rondell Trevino. And he runs the Immigration Coalition, which is a coalition hey, that yeah. deals with some of these immigration issues in a real way. And it's in a Christ centered way. Uh, he, he's a guy who is, is very reasonable about it, but is really imploring Christians to be compassionate when it comes, uh, to immigrants, like have compassion, but at the same time, be realistic and understand that there have to be rules on the border, right? You can't just say, Hey, everybody just come and there's no rules and no kind of, you know, no, no kind of standards set. So I think he approaches it in a very thoughtful way, but even more in a faithful way. So please look into the immigration coalition, my man, uh, Rondell Trevino.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, All right. We're going to take one more quick break and just wrap up uh, this episode of the Church Politics Podcast when we get back. This is the Church Politics Podcast, and just as we end this episode, uh, it, the, 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 the news just broke that uh, Senator Cory Booker has dropped out of the 2020 uh, race, uh, and so we saw late last week Marianne Williamson made it official and, and dropped out, now Senator Booker. It, the, the race really seems to be narrowing down, you know, a, a, a tighter-knit group you really have uh uh five uh key contenders and then a couple folks with a lot of money <laughs> uh and then an, a kind of interesting outlier of Andrew Yang uh and and but I did want to let folks know uh as it broke while we're recording that Senator Booker has uh, officially dropped out of uh, of the 2020 campaign.
1: Yeah, I think we kind of saw this coming. Um I, I you know, I, I think that uh, there's still a future for, for Corey Booker, um, that, you know, this may not be his last shot at it, but unfortunately just the way things were going he just could not get a leg up. I think we kind of saw, knew this, this moment would come pretty soon.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, interesting to, th- and we've talked on this show and on the faith 2020 podcast, a bit about why he hasn't caught on, but I have to say, uh, uh, you know, I think that there are a lot of reasons. I do think that there is a bit of an authenticity issue, uh, uh, but but uh, it is one of the bigger mysteries, uh, uh, something that isn't – I haven't found a completely satisfactory explanation uh, yet as to why he wasn't able to gain traction a- at all, and uh, I think it's something that uh, hopefully uh, we'll see some significant reporting on. Uh, Over the next few weeks, Uh, Justin, we covered a ton in this episode. Is there uh, anything that you want to shout out before we before we uh, land the plane?
1: Yeah, I would just say this. uh, And I've said it before. You know, there is no and campaign without you. Uh, Don't be satisfied sitting on the sidelines and hoping me, uh, uh, Michael and, and our leadership council can take care of all of this ourselves because we can't. Uh, we need you. We need you to get involved with the AND Campaign. We need you guys to start chapters and to really uh, spread the word uh, to people in your church and 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 people that you fellowship with about what the AND Campaign is, is trying to do. This organization does not grow without you, and we'd love you to be a part of it if if you uh, share our convictions and our compassion when it comes to politics. So we invite you into that. If you want to find out more about the AND Campaign, you can email us at engage and campaign.org, but you have to get involved. Uh, We can't do it for for ourselves. We're trying to embolden you and encourage you to get involved and stand shoulder to shoulder with us.
0: That's a great place to end it. This is Church Politics Podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. We'll see you next week.